The following is a pre-recorded program. 906, the News Radio 680 WPTF, Studio B, live and in real time. I'm Tom Carney. I'm here every night, Monday through Friday, with a little bit of live and in real time radio, and we try to bring you things that entertain and edify. And uh, a little bit of this, a little bit of that. I'm fond of saying that if you don't like it tonight, Come back tomorrow night. You might like it then. Lately, we've been in a bookish mood, and that's good. And tonight we have a, a history book, another history book. We had uh, uh, Larry Tice on last Monday night. And tonight we have a gentleman whose acquaintance I have just met, but I can imagine that if he's willing, we might have him come back and talk about some other things. His name is Jeff Broadwater. Jeff, are you there? I'm here. I always like to test this electronic equipment to make sure it's actually working. Uh, Dr. Broadwater teaches history at Barton. Uh, it's still Barton College, isn't it? Uh, Barton College. Everybody's becoming a university these days, and I, I can hardly keep up. But he's a, a professor at Barton College and uh, is from Arkansas, to give you a little bit of his pedigree. And he got a, he got a, a, a JD. He was a lawyer for a while. And then he decided he wanted to be an historian and to work in history and teach history. So he went went a little uh, east of Arkansas over into Tennessee to the excellent graduate school at Vanderbilt University and got his Ph.D. there. Uh, Working in uh, history, a history period that has covered the period right after World War II. Uh, he and I were talking on the phone today, and I, I, I mentioned to him that I think most historians, wherever they, whatever period they specialize in, they tend to go, go roll over back, back before that, because they are always looking for the causes and the root causes of things. Now he made a big leap because he went from post World War II to the uh, colonial and revolutionary period, and and it, and it is a book on the revo- the revolutionary period and the beginning of America that we're going to talk about tonight. It's brand new, published by UNC Press. The title is Jefferson, Madison, and the Making of the Constitution. It says here he is also the author of George Mason, Forgotten Founder, and, and, and he really has an, an excellent bi- bibliography. But we will not do that tonight because we want to talk about Thomas Jefferson and James Madison because although we think we know a lot about these people, we probably don't. Uh, and anytime I'm going to lead you in uh, now, Jeff. Uh, but anytime I say anything that's wrong, just kind of wrap me uh, figuratively on the nose here, and I'll I'll just shut up and let you you do it. But uh, we're going to talk about Jefferson and Madison tonight. I mentioned to you today when we talked earlier that one of the blurbs on your book says uh, that your book uh, is shedding fresh light on both Jefferson and Madison. And so I think we'll start there. Uh, you, you may want to fill us in, uh, give us a little background so we, we have a little context. Uh, Jefferson, for instance, was born, I think, in 1843. It's 1743, is that right? Seven, uh, 1743, that's right. Uh, Madison was born in 1751, so uh, Jefferson was a little bit uh, a little bit older. Um, when we talk about the, uh, sort of the genesis of the book. Uh, that would that would be fine. I just like I, a lot of times. I just like to see where you where a scholar will go. What's what's on your mind? Because uh, what we, we can't cover the whole book tonight, and so we we're just going to hit some of the the high spots and hopefully in, induce some of our listeners 
I, I can recommend this book. I enjoyed reading it. And I told you I had to give a lecture about two years ago to a DAR chapter, and it certainly would have come in handy because it's a succinct statement of uh, the relationship between these two men at the time that, that we were making our Constitution and so on. Okay. But uh, let's talk about the genesis of the book. Okay. Well, you, you had asked me when we talked uh, earlier today about uh, why another book on Jefferson and Madison, and that might be a good place to get started. Uh, it's true that an awful lot has been written about Jefferson and Madison, but I don't know of a, of a book that explores the, how their thinking about constitutional law evolved from the adoption of the Declaration of Independence in 1776 through the, uh, the adoption of the Constitution in uh, 1787, 1788, 1789. Um, and I thought that might be worth taking a look at. Uh, because there is at least an, an apparent tension between the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution. Uh, for example, uh, the Declaration declares you know, famously that all men are created equal. Uh, the Constitution, on the other hand, seems to condone slavery. Uh, slaves were counted as three-fifths of a free person for purposes of representation. There was a provision in the Constitution that provided for the return of runaway slaves. Very different than... than uh, language in the Declaration about all men being created equal. And in fact, some historians have seen the, the Constitution as really a, a conservative retreat from the more idealistic and egalitarian language in the Declaration. And I thought it'd be interesting to take a look at that from Madison's perspective and Jefferson's perspective, because, of course, Jefferson was the author of the Declaration of Independence. Madison was the main driving force behind the Constitution. Uh, and I thought it would be particularly interesting since they were close friends and, and the closest to political allies. And so I thought uh, to, to kind of explore that idea of the, the, the tension uh, in the two documents uh, from the perspective of the two men that were most closely associated with the documents and also very closely associated with each other. So that, that was sort of the premise or the starting point for the book. Uh, for... For a little aside here, just a little bit of geography that I, I mentioned to you when we were talking on the phone earlier today, and that is that uh, uh, it's often presumed uh, by people in looking at our revolutionary history and the writing of the Declaration and the Constitution that there were a group of people that they were just there and occasionally they came together and did something. Uh, but uh, the fact is, is that... Uh, uh, I believe, I want you to check me on this uh, and perhaps comment on it, that Jefferson wrote the Declaration of Independence, and um, it was while he was at the, uh, the convention uh, of delegates from different states that were going to declare independence, and it was the rationale for independence. Madison was not there. No, Madison wasn't there. Because of the difference in their age, uh, by uh, 1776, uh, Jefferson was well into his political career. He'd served in the in the Virginia House of Burgesses, the, the Colonial Assembly. He'd written at least one other important state paper before he was given the responsibility for writing the Declaration of Independence. Uh, uh, Mass, on the other hand, had just been out of college a few years, uh, was just starting his uh, his political career, uh, and uh, so was really not in a Declaration of Independence. If we turn this thing uh, around and look at it the other way, 
when we get to the, Const the Constitution and the creation of the Constitution, uh, at the time that it actually was being created at the convention, I believe, in Philadelphia, uh, Madison, uh, as you indicated, was uh, sort of—he came prepared. He had his notes. He, 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 he had a, uh, an example of what he thought the, the uh, Constitution ought to be like. But Jefferson was not there, in fact. That's right. Jefferson wasn't there. Uh, in 1787, Jefferson was serving as the American minister, we would say ambassador, to France. So he wasn't in Philadelphia, but by 1787, uh, uh, 11 years after the adoption of the Declaration of Independence, by that time, Madison, although he's still fairly young, has, has become really an, uh, an elder statesman. He's, he served in the Continental Congress. He served in the Virginia House of Burgesses. Uh, and uh, he's done extensive research and reading in political theory and in ancient history with really an emphasis on the, on the origins and the, uh, of, uh, and the performance of other republics and confederacies in, uh, in history. So he goes, he goes to the Philadelphia Convention with some, with some definite ideas about some things uh, and not, not, not really definite ideas about some other things. I think it, it, it might surprise people that uh, Madison did not have very clear ideas about what a chief executive should look like in a national government. Uh, the, the office of the presidency was something they really sort of hammered out in the course of the, of the debates in the summer of 77 in Philadelphia. Uh, but on other things, like how the, the, the national legislature should, should work and how that should be made up, he had some very definite ideas about that. But he was certainly about as well prepared and probably better prepared than anybody else at the convention. In fact, Jefferson said later that, that, that Madison was always the best prepared person in any assembly in which he ever served. Might be a little bit of an overstatement, but it was it was certainly true when he was in Philadelphia. Well, indeed, that preparation, and we need to take a break here, but that, it would seem that that preparation, as I have read in other books and in your book, was probably what allowed him to sort of lead the country into, uh, well, if not necessarily lead, certainly be in the front ranks of those who wanted to yeah. Um, get rid of what what, what the governing uh, uh, institution was that the confederation at that time and 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 sort of start over uh, for for the now independent colonies. We're going to look at that too, and this is this is important stuff. Uh, in fact, we don't have time to talk about this tonight, and you don't you don't cover a lot of it. But there is a a lot of discussion. I know I, I, I read some of your footnotes and Jack Rakoff. Rec, how do, is that the way you say Rick, his name? Rick, Jack Rakoff. Yes. Yeah, I've read some of his stuff about the the original the original views of the Constitution and and some in people who interpret it insist that that's where we have to go back to and see what the the people who wrote it intended. And yes. so this this it's worthy to to give some attention to what they intended. But let's let's take a break and come back and. And maybe talk about, okay, the war is fought, uh, uh, the colonists win, uh, some form of government evolves during the war and is set up, and we have something called the Articles of Confederation. What did that look like, and what, it, what were its problems, and what did these two guys, Madison and Jefferson, think about it? Does that sound all right? That sounds fine. Okay. His name is Jeff Broadwater. He teaches history in, in at uh, Barton College in Wilson, North Carolina, about— 50 miles east of here, about the same distance that my hometown of Goldsboro is from here. And he's our guest tonight. He's written uh, 
numerous works having to do with the uh, the revolutionary period, and this is one that's just out, and it's it's uh, concise, succinct, and I think covers the subject well and is extremely readable. Jefferson, Madison, and the Making of the Constitution. Jeff Broadwater will be back. 922 in News Radio 680 WPTF. Tom Kearney along with Dr. Jeff Broadwater, who is, I, and I need to get it right this time, he is Professor Emeritus uh, at uh, Barton College in Wilson and has retired, but he continues to uh, sit down and turn out the books. And he has a brand new one, Jefferson, Madison, and the Making of the Constitution, a subject that uh, indeed I think uh, probably most Americans would like to know about and don't know as much as they would like. Uh, Jeff, I can't remember exactly where we were now. I think we need to talk about uh, what the, the government that was formed during the revolutionary period now that the colonists had declared themselves independent. And, of course, the, the peace came in uh, uh, I believe 1781, uh, something that we know as the Articles of Confederation. Right, yeah. Yeah, the Articles of Confederation were adopted toward the end of the American Revolution. They create a very weak central government. Uh, There was no president, no national court system. Uh, There was a Congress, uh, a one-house Congress, in which each state had one vote, so it wasn't very democratic. Uh, And it, it didn't have a lot of the powers that you would think that a national government would have. Uh, It couldn't uh, impose taxes. It could ask the states for money, but the states rarely provide as much money as Congress requested, so Congress constantly struggled to pay its bills, uh, and Congress couldn't regulate trade. Um, It couldn't adopt tariffs, Uh, and that became a real problem after the Revolution, and and particularly a, a problem that bothered Madison and Jefferson, um, because the uh, the um, because Congress couldn't adopt a say a protective tariff, they couldn't do anything to retaliate against countries, uh, particularly Great Britain, to discriminate against American trade, uh, discriminate against American exports or American shipping, and that just created a whole series of problems. The uh, the, the discrimination against American trade created an unfavorable balance of trade, we were importing more than we were selling, which that drained hard currency out of the United States, uh, which made it uh, uh, more difficult for the states to raise taxes uh, and to finance the central government. Um, It uh, created pressure for the states to print paper money because there was a shortage of, of hard currency. That created inflation. It created tension between debtors and creditors because it was hard for the, the debtors to pay their bills. And so it's just a, ho- a whole series of problems. Uh, and, and Madison and Jefferson thought that one thing that definitely needed to be done was, was the national government needed to be given the power to regulate trade. Of course, one other problem with the Articles was they're almost impossible to amend. The, uh, the, the states had to all agree to any amendment, and they came close in the 1780s to agreeing to an amendment, but they could, but all 13 of them could never agree on the details of a particular amendment, so, so nothing got done. Pretty much at this in this period, what governing was done was done at the, at the state level. Uh, that's right. And, that's right. Uh, that the real power in the system was in the state governments, and uh, at least Madison and, and a lot of people, and we should 
make clear, you know, the, and I think as you mentioned, you may have mentioned earlier, uh, Amass and Jefferson are not doing any of this by themselves. They're just sort of very important figures that, that I'm focusing on the book. But uh, there was a widespread sense, I think, by the um, by the mid and late 1780s that the state assemblies just weren't up to the, the task and were really behaving pretty, pretty badly, at least Madison thought they were. And uh, Madison thought uh, that uh, we needed a stronger central government, not just to, say, retaliate against the British and protect American trade, but to rein in the state governments to try to protect minorities within the states from majorities within the states. Now, Jefferson didn't really, that, that wasn't a big issue for Jefferson, but, uh, but, but Madison was very concerned about uh, the abuse of, of minorities. And I, when I say minorities, of course, today we think of, 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 of racial ethnic minorities. He was thinking more about uh, religious minorities, economic uh, uh, minorities, uh, perhaps uh, section or geographic minorities, but he was he was still concerned about that. Jefferson was not was Jefferson was not is worried about that, um, and I think that uh, Madison was more sensitive to the need for change than Jefferson was because Madison sort of divides his time in the 1780s between the Virginia Assembly, which isn't working very well, and Congress, which isn't working very well. Jefferson is in is in France. He's a little bit removed from what's going on in the United States, but he can see that even with the problems in the United States, the average, at least white America, is much better off than the average European. And so, so he realizes the need for change, but he doesn't see the need for change quite sweeping. Is what Madison supports. He, it seems like to me that uh, uh, he, he's a little more, uh, to use a fancy word, ethereal than uh, than. Uh, Madison is. Madison is a little more practical than, than Jefferson is, and of course he's over there and he's got caught up in the spirit, you know, right. the, yeah. of, of the I French think, Revolution. I think Jefferson, just by temperament, was was more of a visionary, more idealistic, mm-hmm. more optimistic. Uh, Madison tends to be more uh, more skeptical, uh, a little more systematic in his thought, uh, and uh, it's sort of ironic, I think, that 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 uh, Jefferson. Was was the, maybe the more popular, the more charismatic political leader, but Masson was, I think, a better suited to sort of the give and take, the nuts and bolts of politics. Well, you know, uh, he Jefferson was. I, I'm I'm kind of uh, evoking here a little bit, uh, but Jefferson was a, was a little more, uh, I think, charismatic. He 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 spoke well and he wrote well and he was yes. tall and, and and in a ruddy way handsome and. And then we have little Jimmy, who was yeah. what about five three? Does that sound right yeah, to you? Yeah, he's, he's uh, maybe a little taller than that. They're 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 different accounts. But he was, he, he, but he wasn't very tall, and he was frail. Uh, was not a very good speaker. I mean, of course, Jefferson wasn't a great speaker, but right. uh, mm-hmm. But he was more physically impressive than than Madison. Um, but you really, the, the personalities really come through in the. In, in the writings, at least you can tell the difference. You're right. Uh, uh, Jefferson was a better writer, wrote more memorable prose. Uh, Madison would, 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 in his writing, would sort of split hair so much sometimes you just couldn't tell <laughs> what he was trying to say. Uh, can, Jefferson can, was speaking can, in very broad, 
phrases, uh, very memorable phrases. Let me uh, let me stop you here. Let me stop you here for a second because we have a newscast coming up. When we come back, let's get these guys to the convention in Annapolis and then Philadelphia. The following is a pre-recorded program. Tom Kearney here. John Sauter is our producer. Our guest tonight is Dr. Jeff Broadwater, Professor Emeritus of History at Barton College. And he has a new book, Jefferson, Madison, and the Making of the Constitution. And we'll be back to talk about it a little bit more here in about 28 seconds. But this is where we usually do a little promoing. Uh, tomorrow night, the nighttime mechanic will be here. Dean Bailey of uh, King's Auto will be here. So if you have an automobile problem, you can can get some free advice. And the, the price is right. Hugh Harris, who's with the North Carolina Attorney General's Office and uh, uh, consumer protection areas will be our guest. He usually comes by every couple of months uh, on Wednesday night. Thursday night is going to be our nostalgia night. Not sure what we're going to talk about that night, but it will be something uh, that maybe we would want to remember and to re- you know to call back if we could. Friday night will be Friday night trivia night, so we have a good week coming up. But as I said, we're talking with uh, Dr. Jeff Broadwater tonight about uh, two. Of the Founding Fathers, uh, in fact, uh, beyond them, of the names that are common to us, the only one that I could think that would perhaps be higher on the list here would be uh, would be George Washington. But uh, these two gentlemen were close. Uh, they lived in central Virginia, one a little northeast of Charlotte, what is Charlottesville, and one a little just slightly south of Charlottesville. And... Uh, Dr. Broadwater, you were talking about the problem that the Confederation was having with trade, and I believe it was this problem that brought uh, the idea to some of the members of the uh, various confederated uh, uh, states that uh, they should get together and see if they couldn't come up with something better in terms of a government. And they, I know that at one point they ended up in Annapolis, and then it's almost like it happens in secret or without di- directly being, well, well, today they would say it wasn't very transparent. Uh, uh, am I okay on this and getting us to Philadelphia? Well, I think, I think that's uh, fair, and I think uh, there was a, also a certain degree of uh, apathy and uh, just, just a little bad luck about the Annapolis Conference, but it, it, it's true that, uh, uh, that the states uh, uh, or in, in Congress called for a meeting of, the states in Annapolis, uh, Maryland, to discuss this, this problem of trade regulations. Uh, but only, uh, uh, I think, four or five states were, were represented. Uh, uh, North Carolina was not represented. Uh, Hugh Williamson was the North Carolina delegate. Uh, but he, by the time he got there, the, uh, the convention had, had adjourned. So it wasn't as if all the states were just trying to, or a lot of the states were trying to boycott Annapolis. Uh, it was Partly, it was just a problem of getting around in the in 18th century America. As I remember, the the story of Maryland, the state of Maryland, didn't send a, a delegate because they were afraid they thought the Annapolis Conference might undermine Congress, which was not what it was intended to do. But in any event, Madison did attend the Annapolis Conference, uh, but there weren't enough states there to really do anything of substance. Uh, but what the Annapolis Con- uh, Conference did do was to recommend just a general meeting of the states to discuss all the issues that the, the, the constitutional issues the Confederation had, uh, had raised. Uh, and uh, all the states except Rhode Island agreed to that, and, and Congress called the 
the Constitutional Convention that met in Philadelphia uh, in, uh, uh, in May of 1787. Um, and, and what they've decided then is to, to not just talk about trade problems, but the uh, the other larger problems. I'm sure there were folks who, who would just assume this did not happen. Uh, but uh, Jeff, you pointed out that uh, Madison is the kind of person who was prepared. And from what I've read of him and from your book, uh, he had spent a lot of time studying other republics and how they worked. And uh, he had a notebook full of uh, uh, ideas yes. about that. He even, even wrote himself a, a, a memo, a, a kind of a research paper on how other republics and, and confederacies had, uh, had, had worked in the past. And the conclusion that he came to was that typically they didn't work uh, because the central government was too weak. Uh, and uh, that was the, the main thing that he, he wanted to fix in Philadelphia. And wasn't it also one of the factors was it the belief that a republic uh, that was beyond a certain size would not function properly? That, 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 was, that was a sort of theoretical problem that he had, he had to to get over the, the the conventional wisdom, and this went back to Montesquieu, who was the famous French political philosopher, was that for a republic to function, it had to be relatively small, and it needed to be small because you wanted citizens to have a, a common a common interest. Uh, and if, if a republic got too big, it, it introduced factions or special interest groups with, within the republic, and they would they would fall out among themselves, and the the, the republic would would, would collapse. Uh, and Madison's answer to that, and this was pretty creative and original on on his part, was that, that, that no, that that was that was wrong. That a larger republic would actually be better than a than a small republic, because in a large republic, you would have a variety of, of factions. We would call them interest groups, but he used the term factions. You'd have a variety of factions, and no one faction would be able to dominate the, the, dominate the, the government. He had seen that on a smaller scale in, in Virginia, uh, where uh, after the Anglican Church was disestablished, the Church of England had been the state church in England up until the Revolution, there had been a proposal in Virginia to uh, for what? was called a general assessment for the support of the churches, that, that, that citizens would be taxed to support the church of their choice. And Madison and Jefferson were opposed to that. They, they believed in, uh, uh, well, we'll say separation of church and state, but maybe we shouldn't take that too literally, but they were opposed to state-supported churches um, and were very much opposed to that proposal, and it, it was defeated. And, and Madison thought it was defeated because the different denominations didn't trust one another, that uh, that uh, the, the, the the Baptists and the Presbyterians thought that the, the Episcopalians would game the system and they'd get more state aid than they deserved. And so to him that was an example of how factions, in this case religious factions, could be used to defeat bad legislation. And uh, he thought uh, that could be... Uh, uh, Reproduced many times over in a in a republic of, of continental dimensions. In those days, it seems like from what I've read that the word faction was a bad had a bad smell bad, about bad, it. Yes, that was that that was the that was a bad term. That was a, a, that was 
and uh, and Madison defined factions as a group that put their own interest above the, the public interest, and that was that was definitely a, a, a bad term, negative term. Uh, In fact, there were other folks that weren't convinced. Of course, the anti-federalists is the folks that later opposed ratification of the Constitution weren't weren't convinced about this theory, uh, but. Uh, I think Jefferson, for, for one, was, uh, and we might talk about this later if we've got time. Jefferson was initially very skeptical of the Constitution, but uh, he didn't object to it simply on the grounds that it was creating a, a new republic that was just too big, which you know Montesquieu might have, have said was the problem. Uh, well, that's where I was, where I was headed, because we've, we've got out there, we've crawled out on the... Uh, uh, let's write a new constitution, Liam, with with Madison, and uh, sort of uh, in our discussion at least left Jefferson behind. But what what did Jefferson think about all of this, and were he and Madison in constant communication about this? Uh, they uh, they communicated some. I wouldn't say constant because the problem in those days of, of getting mm-hmm. a letter across the Atlantic Ocean, we were in constant communication. And when the communi- when the convention adopted. They uh, or uh, convened. They adopted a, a a rule of secrecy that they would not reveal their debates or deliberations until the convention was over. So Masson was limited in what he could tell Jefferson uh, until the con- convention adjourned. Uh, but Jefferson had very serious reservations about the Constitution when he first saw it. He had two principal problems: one, there was no term limits for the president. He thought that there should be term limits for the president. And the other thing was the lack of a Bill of Rights. The, the original Constitution did not contain a Bill of Rights. And uh, that was that was the, the, the most common objection that people raised during the debate over ratification. Um, and, uh, and Jefferson, in fact, uh, suggested, he wrote some letters suggesting this, that uh, nine states, should ratify the Constitution, because the Constitution provided that if, if, if nine states ratified it, it would become effective as to those nine states. And Jefferson's original proposal was that, okay, nine states ratified because we need a new Constitution, but four states withhold their approval until the Bill of Rights is, is, is added. Um, and uh, Masson didn't like that idea at all, uh, because if, say, the four states included let's say, Virginia and New York, it wouldn't be much of a new government if some of the larger states were not, not part of it. I think he thought that if you ever lost momentum, you were going to have a problem. And that's right, and, and that's right, because there was opposition elsewhere. Uh, I mean, North Carolina, there was opposition North Carolina, uh, Rhode Island, New Hampshire. Uh, if uh, if the Constitution had been you know, voted down in one or two states, it, it might have been hard to, to get to nine states. Uh, eventually, uh, in, in, in several states, including Virginia, the Federalists, the people that support ratification of the Constitution, agree to a compromise, and that is that if the, if the state conventions that are called to ratify the Constitution will approve it, then the Federalists agree they'll support amendments to the Constitution and a, a Bill of Rights and some other amendments uh, after it, it, it takes effect. And when Jefferson heard that proposal, when, when word of that proposal got him in France, uh, he liked that. He thought that was a good solution. 
During this period, uh, the effort to get it it uh, passed, and that's right at the edge of of where your book goes. Uh, yes. Uh, Madison, along with Alexander Hamilton, I believe, and I think John Jay did. Yes. Made, you know where I'm going with this. Made a little contribution, but they they ended up writing the uh, articles for actually for a New York, New York newspaper that ended up being bound into a book called The Federalist that, right. that was yeah. designed. I remember we were talk, you were talking earlier about this. One of the things that Madison wrote about was how a minority survives in, in, a, in, in a state where they are the minority against a majority and so on. But that, that's the greatest exposition about what the Constitution was supposed to be that, that we, in fact, have. And uh, What did Jefferson—did Jefferson have any idea about The Federalist Papers? Yeah, the, the, uh, the historians often, sort of, uh, in recent years anyway, have have downplayed the importance of the of the Federalist Papers. Uh, they uh, they they were a little bit too scholarly, uh, too, too wordy, uh, maybe to appeal to a general audience. Uh, they they circulate out of New York too late to influence the ratification debate. It, in most of the states, uh, and and uh, so historians have tended to downplay their significance. But for purposes of my story, uh, part of the significant they are significant in that the Federalist Papers helped convince Jefferson to support the Constitution, oh, okay. and, uh, and and he tells Jeff, he writes a letter to, to Madison and tells him that the Federalist Papers answered a lot of the questions that he had about the Constitution, and that he considered it the the, the finest. Treatise ever written on, on the principles of government. So the Federalist Papers were important in, in in bringing Jefferson over to the side of the Federalists when he was kind of on the fence when the ratification debate started. And Jefferson's opinion made a difference, even though he was in France. He was writing letters to people back in America. Uh, uh, people knew that that uh, he had reservations that he was. Suggested that originally that four of the states did not ratify the Constitution. So Jefferson's opinion has mattered. Okay, we we need to stop here and take our our uh, next to last break here. Okay. Uh, we are talking on the the Tom Kearney show tonight with uh, Dr. Jeff Broadwater, Professor Emeritus of History at Barton College, uh, about a new book that's fresh out. You can get it. Uh, it's UNC Press, so it will have good distribution at your 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 bookstore. Or at the usual places. Uh, the title is Jefferson, Madison, and the Making of the Constitution. 952 in News Radio 680 WPTF, a very special guest tonight, Dr. Jeff Broadwater, Professor Emeritus of History at Barton College in Wilson. Uh, the book is Jefferson, Madison, and the Making of the Constitution. Uh, Jeff, we've got about five minutes left here, and um, you mentioned that one of the top topics we might look at uh, introducing the readers to your book is the question of the Bill of Rights. Yes. Yeah, the uh, the ratification debate really tested Jefferson and Madison's friendship. Uh, Jefferson was, 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 was appalled that the Constitution didn't originally include a Bill of Rights. Uh, Madison, on the other hand, didn't see a need for it. Madison thought that the, the, the Constitution created government of, of, of enumerated or, or uh, very uh, uh, specific powers, uh, and none of those powers would, uh, would give the federal government uh, the, uh, uh, 
argument. And they debated in their in their correspondence. And one of the points that, that Madison makes is he just didn't see how Bill of Rights would, would be enforced. Um, and uh, Jefferson replies, and, and one of the things that Jefferson says is, well, it could be it could be enforced in the courts. That if Congress passed a law violating, say, freedom of speech, the the, the courts would would uh, uh, would uh, uh, would overturn it. And I'm not sure that that Jefferson's letters were uh, pivotal necessarily or decisive in persuading Mason uh, uh, Madison to support a bill of rights because he was under a lot of political pressure from from other sources to do it. But Jefferson did or solve one problem for Madison, and that was suggesting enforcement mechanism. Uh, Madison runs for Congress after the, ratif- after the Constitution is ratified, and one of the issues that comes up in the congressional race is this question of, of, of a Bill of Rights. Uh, and Madison promises in the congressional race that if he's elected, he'll support the Bill of Rights. Uh, he's got a lot of pressure from the Baptists in Virginia who want a provision in the Constitution to protect freedom of religion. That's politically where most of the pressure is coming from. He's elected to Congress, and one of the first things he does is to introduce uh, what we know of as the Bill of Rights, includes provision protecting freedom of religion, and in presenting it to Congress, one of the arguments he makes is that if, if we... And there were other people that, that argued that, well, I don't know how this would be, be enforced. It's just sort of a, it's just sort of a platitude. Uh, these things are, how would you enforce them? And he repeats the, the argument that Jefferson's given him, that the, the, the courts will, will enforce these. Now, that's something we take for granted, but we've got to remember, and this is about 1789, this idea of judicial review, or the idea that courts could strike down laws that they thought were unconstitutional. That was, that was sort of a novelty. That idea was just beginning to, to, to emerge. Uh, and it was Jefferson that sort of made the connection for Madison between the power of the courts and, and, uh, and the enforcement of the Bill of Rights. Uh, and Madison uh, thought the main advantage of a Bill of Rights would really be just to satisfy some of the critics of the Constitution and eliminate kind of a political problem, and it went a long way to doing that. So we could, in fact, get on with things, uh, of course. Yeah. Uh, you, and, I, and there, were, there were really enough ambiguities in the Constitution that, that what happened once it was ratified, uh, the debate shifted to interpreting the Constitution as opposed to whether the Constitution should be ratified or not. Mm-hmm. And and there was still some refining that had to be done in the yeah. 90s. And, yeah. and then, of course, uh, John Marshall shows up and uh, is representative of some of this interpretation. Well, yeah. we have run out of time now, and so I'm going to thank you and tell folks again that we've been talking with Jeff Broadwater, Professor Emeritus at uh, uh, Barton College in Wilson. And the book we've been talking about and one worthy of your attention is Jefferson Madison and the Making of the Constitution. Jeff, thanks for being with us tonight. Well, thank you for having me.